Tell me what you find. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 11. I know I skipped over about half of Matthew 10. I want to come back to that because I want to do a series um, with all of these different references that Jesus is hitting on in terms of family and brother against brother, son against father. We'll talk about that in November for a couple weeks. So I'm going to just skip ahead a little bit uh, for the sake of kicking into chapter 11. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, so if you remember at the beginning of chapter 10, he gave instruction for his disciples to go out and put into practice what he was doing. So he's finished doing that, and now we're going to get some more commentary here. He had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples. He moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when Jesus heard, uh, now when John, sorry, when John heard in prison uh, with what Jesus was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. And he asked him, so John asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to him, or to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As the men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes, they're in royal palaces. So what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it was written. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare a way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law of the prophets, and, or all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So let anyone who has ears listen. I'm sure you picked up everything Jesus just said and made a lot of sense to you, so let's dive into it, right? Welcome to First Baptist. Ever had your expectations just dashed? Just the thing that you thought was going to happen, the life you expected to see come just absolutely shattered. I've told the story before, but I just, I don't know, it's the one I always have to tell. Haley, uh, Haley and I dated long distance for about two years, but when we first started dating long distance, I lived right outside of Nashville. Uh, she lived in Albuquerque. And so she was coming to visit me for the very first time. Um, yeah, there's the picture of it already. So this was still that stage of life that was like my mom was like, oh, you guys are going on a fancy date night. We got to drive you out to your great aunt's house who lives on a golf course and take pictures. That's, that's what that is. Um, so anyways, she, she had flown in and we were getting ready to go on this you know, date night. We were going to go to a really fancy restaurant right at Maker's Chop House and have steaks and you know, just, just date. We're long distance. It was the first time we ever got to sit down and do this. And so I'd really prepared out in my head how I wanted this date to go. Because, you know, in my mind, I thought there, it's pretty clear what women want in guys, what, what they're wanting in, in a marriage and who they're wanting to date. You know, they, they want to date guys who have life figured out. They want guys with direction and assurance and future plans. And I need to make sure that she knows that, that I'm not just, you know, flying by the seat of my pants here, but I have really meticulous plans on how I see my life going so that she knows I'll be able to provide for her very well. 
So we sat down at this restaurant, me and my you know, finest white button down, um, and, and we start talking. And at the time, I was interning at a church there in my hometown. And, and the pastor of that church, we'd had a couple conversations about, Philip, you know, there's coming a day that I want to step out of this church and go back into the academic world. Uh, I really would love if you would be interested in transitioning in as pastor. You know, maybe after you graduate college, you can come and work for a little bit. We'll transition you in as pastor. Now, it wasn't a particularly large church. It's 150, 200 people or so, but it was a very wealthy church. Um, and so, you know, that told me, hey, I could go pastor this church. We can make a pretty comfortable living. We can live right here next to my family. Um, you know, things your wife always wants to hear. And so I thought I was just laying it out on the table, and she was just soaking it up. So we went about, we, we went back home. She flew home there a couple days later. And the second her plane landed, she just texted me and said, I'm home, we'll talk later. Like, not even a phone call? Like, what's, is everything okay? And then the next day she called me and she just said, hey, it's not working out. We're not going to do this anymore. See ya. And she broke up with me, just on the spot, dumped me. I'll never forget where I was sitting. I was at my friend's house, sitting in a beanbag chair in the other room, like just totally ruined my expectations. Reality shattered in front of my eyes. I mean, man, look how, look how nice I dressed. She still didn't cut it, right? Now, my example isn't really great because from this side, it's laughable. Obviously, there's more to the story because hence now we're married and we don't live in Lebanon and there's great stuff that has come from that. But I think we all have these stories, and probably stories that are far deeper than this one. We can take that down, Kelsey. No one needs to see that anymore now. Stories that are far deeper than this one uh, that, that now are just shattered realities, leaving us in darkness and despair and brokenness and heartache and turmoil and all of these things. Stories that aren't laughable at all, really. Stories of that unhealed diagnosis or that phrase, I'm sorry, but the cancer's back. Words that are betrayals of friends and family that we thought we could trust with everything and turns out we couldn't. Stories of failed relationships and careers and goals and dreams and aspirations just all left in this heap of ash with no chance of rebuilding it. And that in itself is inexplicably hard. But what do we do when we factor in God and faithfulness and obedience and we're still facing the pile of ash? When we look back and we say, God, there's never been any sin I've committed that's ruined this. I, I can't point out any particular thing that's hurt this or me in the process. But here I am with this pile of ash in front of me wondering what went wrong. When you point to a calling that you just know God put on your life, but every time you've tried to live into it, it's crumbled. Or you live into it, but it didn't pan out the way you thought it was going to pan out. There comes a point where we all have to reckon with this question, why follow Jesus, especially when we face the ash heap. Because for many of us, whether we're aware of it or not, our answer comes across something like, well, I follow Jesus because he makes my life work out well. I, I follow Jesus because he makes my life work out well, and by well, what I mean is he makes my life go the way I would expect it to go. Jesus makes it so that I never get sick or that I always have enough money and ends always meet and I never have to deal with my problems because he deals with all of my problems. But that expectation then sets us up for devastating influxes of doubt. 
And then then to complicate matters even worse, our modern Western kind of mindset has convinced us that any slight ounce of suffering is to be avoided at all costs. Got a headache, take ibuprofen. Hungry, go to McDonald's. Just solve the problem right on the instance. Don't suffer. Feel good. That's the message that we live in. And so then we begin to believe that God plays a part in that. So his role in our life is actually just to alleviate suffering at whatever whim we want him to alleviate suffering. And again, this isn't having your girlfriend break up with you. This is having your 4,000th prayer feel like it once again bounced off the ceiling. This is that feeling where you attend church for the 150th time, desperately hoping that when you go home, home is going to be different, and you walk back in, and it's the exact same thing it's always been. This is that feeling that I I can't shake when I know despite every story of God's faithfulness to me in my past and all the story of God's faithfulness to the people that I know around me, uh, that isolating question still creeps into my head and says, is any of this real? Am I crazy? Is this just mass delusion that I'm propagating and living into? But, But I can't ask that question out loud because if anyone found out that I asked that question, surely I'd be kicked out of church or worse, fired because, right, I'm a pastor and doubts for those people that don't, don't have it all figured out like I do, except for when I don't. Welcome to Matthew chapter 11. This is what Matthew 11 is all about as John faces, or faces the ash heap of his life now imprisoned, and he comes to Jesus saying, is this really what you intended? Are you really the Messiah? Let me break this down. We're just going to walk through kind of verse by verse today, and then at the end we'll see if we can tie it all together. But I want you to hold on to that question we started with, why follow Jesus? Verse 1, when Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their town. So Jesus is still continuing to do everything you've read about him doing up until this point. If Matthew could just say this is a daily occurrence, Jesus goes about healing people, teaching his kingdom, restoring the lost, all of these things are parts of what Jesus does on a regular basis. The stories from chapter 8 and 9, they're just little blips of everyday realities that didn't get recorded in this book. And with all of this starting to happen, the rumor mill is beginning to to churn. And John the Baptist, who we read about at the beginning of every gospel, has now caught wind of it from his prison cell in King Herod's dungeon. Verse 2, we find that John heard about this in prison. Now, we've not heard anything about John the Baptist since Matthew, all the way beginning of his his gospel and Jesus' baptism. And now we find out that that John is imprisoned. Mark tells us in chapter 1 that John's arrest correlates with the launching of Jesus' ministry. So it seems John has probably been in prison or sitting in a jail cell for at least a few months, maybe a little bit longer than that, depending on our timeline of Matthew. And Matthew's going to tell us more about what and how all this happened in chapter 14 and where it's all going. I won't get into all of that, but it's this kind of soap opera tale of where King Herod's having an affair with his sister-in-law, and he divorces his wife for the sake of marrying his sister-in-law. It's very scandalous. John calls that out. So John, that, and then plus the fact that John's whole message is, a new king is coming. King Herod didn't really like John too much, so it gave more fodder to arrest John. So John is now stuck, if you know the story, between prison and his head on a platter, because that's how the story ends for John. And so John, in prison, sends his disciples to go to Jesus as Jesus is teaching and to ask Jesus a question. Verse 3, are you the one who is to come, 
Or should we expect someone else? Now, there's a lot to be explored in in this passage, but it helps to start with just the rationale in verse 2 that we just read. Because what is it that prompts this question? When John heard what the Messiah, so it's the reference to Christ, the Messiah, was doing. It is the actions of Jesus that prompt questioning Jesus. Are you picking up on the irony in this Bible story? Because on the surface, it's a ridiculous statement, right? Man, upon seeing all the lives healed at church and the marriages restored and the people that were addicted set free, I just don't know about this Jesus guy. I don't think I can go to church there. I'm sorry. No one says that, right? What's going on here? John knows all the Old Testament passages. He knows the prophets. He knows what it means that Jesus is fulfilling the prophets. And then this irony gets accentuated even more when you factor in that this this is John. I mean, have you read the stories of John and Luke and in the Gospels? This is John, the fetal baby who leapt in his mother's womb the instant Mary, pregnant with Jesus, walked through the door. There seems to be some knowledge in John's forming brain inside his mother that recognizes the presence of the Messiah as a fetal infant. That's this John. This is the John who once prophesied as he was teaching, no, there's one coming that I'm not even worthy to tie his sandal. The John who, when he sees Jesus, steps out of his teaching and just says, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take and forgive the sins of the world. The one that when his disciples, including Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, when they stopped following John and began following Jesus, John said, hey, he needs to increase, I must decrease. It's all about Jesus. It's, this is the same John, the same John who had the front row seat to the baptism of Jesus, that as he put Jesus under the water, the heavens rip apart, the spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, and an audible voice speaks from the heavens, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That is this John. Do you see the irony? What on earth happened? Surely, if there was anyone on the planet to have certainty as to who the Messiah was, it was John. And now he's stuck in turmoil and doubt. Why? Well, the implication seems to be that John knew Jesus was the Messiah. But John did not fully comprehend what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah. So when Jesus doesn't line up with John's expectations, when the Messiah he imagined in his head doesn't exactly match the Messiah he hears about in reality, John falls into a crisis of faith. Jesus, are you really the Messiah, or have I misinterpreted this whole situation, and do I need to start looking for someone else to come? That's the question that John asks in verse 3. But then look at Jesus' response. Jesus replied to them, Go, report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor are told the good news. And we want to clap and cheer and say, Yes, that's who Jesus is. Here's the question, though. Is any of that news to John? No. None of that is news to John, right? Verse 2, when John heard about all that Jesus was doing, and then Jesus says, let me tell you all that I'm doing. That's the exact point of the passage. Jesus just re-says everything that John already knows. So what is Jesus doing here? 
Well, to some extent, what Jesus is doing is he's taking a bunch of prophecies from the book of Isaiah. He's putting them in a blender and then popping them all out one after another so you can just see a list of text and this and then how they correlate into Isaiah. There's even more than just this, um, but that just at least gives you a taste. But as you start reading through these prophecies in Isaiah and seeing the corresponding passages, there's another underlying point here that John wants you to, or that Jesus wants you to pick up on. So let me just read two, two verses, one from Isaiah 42 and one from Isaiah 61. I'll have them up on the screen. Isaiah 42, the verse before this, I will watch over you, and then 47, I will watch over you in order to open blind eyes, open the sight of the blind, that's something Jesus says, and then he says, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, those sitting in darkness from the prison house. Or Isaiah 61, that's the passage Jesus quotes in Capernaum in uh, the beginning of Luke when he talks about his own ministry launching. And it says, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive and freedom to the prisoner. Now again, go back one more slide for me. Sorry, I should have made that easy. You see this list of things that Jesus has said. Do you notice the thing that is very blatantly missing here? Jesus almost intentionally goes through Isaiah and says, here are the things that I'm going to doing. But then he willingly leaves out anything about setting free the prisoner or releasing the captive. Do you pick up on what John or what Jesus just told John? It's as if Jesus is saying, John, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. Look around. You've read the prophets. Same prophets I read. All of those things are happening, John. But I'm not coming for you. There's no military campaign to march in on the palace. There's no hidden armies in the hillside. John, I am the one that you set the path for, even if I'm not going to do what you expect me to do. This is Jesus' words to John. And if you think that's disheartening in itself, verse 6 is the heart of all of this. Because he quotes all this, and then he gives a new beatitude, and he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus speaks into this emotion that so many of us know so well. Those moments when you look around and you hear stories of God working and healing, and yet you sit in this dungeon wondering if your prayers are even getting through the ceiling. That feeling you get when someone tells you, oh, my wayward child has finally come back. You know, we were really worried there when he was about 17, 18, but he's 19. He's, he's given himself back to Jesus. He's back in church, and it's incredible. We are just so thankful for what God's done. And you're saying, my kid's 37, and I've been praying for years. Why? Why does that kid come back and mine doesn't, God? I'm trying to make sense of this. Well, why does it... The cancer diagnosis come back to the dad of three in his early 40s, but the elder lady gets healed? Make sense of it. Oh, why is it so difficult to make ends meet when that one girl in youth groups bragging that her outfit cost $180 that her parents bought her? And you're saying, I don't understand, God. Make sense of it for me, please. This is the emotion Jesus speaks into. And his words might seem harsh. They may even be a bit offensive. They probably go against everything that you would expect that you would know about Jesus. Erwin um, McManus, it's a book that Haley's dad gave me to read when we first started dating called Unleashed, and he talks about this passage, and here's his kind of way of, of putting this statement that Jesus says. I love it. John, I'm not coming through for you. 
I'm not getting you out of prison. I'm not sparing your life. Yes, I have done all of this and more for others, but the path I choose for you is different from theirs. You will be blessed, John, if this does not call you to fall away. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but he is not a Messiah come to save us from pain and suffering, at least not yet. He is a Messiah come to save us from meaningless and to restore us to the divine purpose of our, our creator as he remakes this world through our faithfulness. So that we can walk in confidence with him in the middle of heartbreaking situations that we can't always make sense of this side of heaven. And if you notice, that's the end of the story for John. At least until 14 when the real end of the story comes in his execution, which is no better than this ending. But from here it just closes out. Verse 7, as the men were leaving. That's all Jesus gives them. Hey, go tell John that he already knows exactly what's happening. And blessed is the one that doesn't stumble because of this. And they leave, and Jesus turns to the crowd and begins talking all the more. And Jesus is going to make it clear that John's situation is not because any sort of fault in him or a sin or anything like that. In fact, Jesus seems to be contextually pointing out just how magnificent and amazing this prophet John the Baptist was and all that he did in the world. He's comparing him to Herod. There's a lot at play here that I can't go into all of it. But he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind. There seems to be kind of this double entendre here. One was King Herod, uh, Antipas, this, this Herod, uh, as he came into power, minted coins. And so I have pictures of them. We've actually found them, and you can see. Uh, and on the back of one of these coins, you'll notice a little reed plant. Um, so, so King Herod kind of came equated to this concept of a reed. But there seems to be this other kind of word play, this idiom at use, that uh, a reed out in the wilderness, you know, the wind would push it down, and it would come up, and it would blow this way. And so it became this kind of metaphorical way of talking about a political figure who would lean and sway according to popular opinion. No, politicians don't do that anymore, at least. But back then, they used to. So, that was a joke, I don't know. Um, any, anyway, so, so Jesus is saying, did you go in the wilderness to see the king? He's making fun of King Herod, in a way. And then he says, no, 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 no. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? Again, we could translate that word soft, or your Bible might say fine clothes or, or fancy clothes. Or No, 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 those people are living in the palace. Jesus seems to be making some sort of commentary here on what does it mean to have influence in the world. Because by all of human standards, King Herod should have been the most influential person in that area as the king. And Jesus is saying, you guys know, John was far more influential he wasn't the reed swaying in the wind, and he didn't wear fancy clothes. But you went to see a prophet. You went to see someone that you know spoke for God. He wasn't rich. He wasn't politically powerful. He wasn't a motivational speaker. But you and I all know that he was a prophet. And then he quotes from Malachi, mentioning that this is not just a prophet that they know, but is actually the prophet foretold by the prophets, the prophet of the prophets, so to speak. And then he goes into this kind of little cryptic message from verse 11 down. I don't have time to break all of this down, but I think it helps just to kind of get a concept of what Jesus is building into here. So he says in, in verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. So he's saying John the Baptist is the prophet of prophets. He is the prophet by which the Old Testament prophets prophesied about. Am I using the word prophecy too much in this? That's Jesus' point here. And he says, no one's been greater. And then he drops this little word and says, 
But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What on earth is John doing here? And the best kind of point I've been able to see is that this is a transitional moment that Jesus is marking. The moment between John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah is a transitional moment in history. God is concluding the time of the prophets as he brings his new kingdom through Jesus. Then Jesus offers his spirit to anyone who would believe in him, meaning that the channel of communication from God to humanity now doesn't just happen through a select few people, but through anyone and everyone who would put their faith in Jesus. There is a marking transitional moment through the coming spirit in Jesus and John being the final prophet. Therefore, the new, uh, the least in this new kingdom are still greater than John of the prophet kingdom. Uh, N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, he has a little um, illustration that I think works really well, but he talks about how, uh, imagine that you lived at the turn of the invention of the automobile. And let's just say you live in New York City and you run the most successful horse and carriage company in New York City, Smith & Sons Horse and Carriage. And all of a sudden, Henry Ford starts pumping out The model, the Model T, is that what it was called? Right? How good is business for you? Going downhill pretty quick, right? Now, you could have been doing your job really well. I mean, you could have been honest with your work, a really good, hard worker in the Smiths and Sons, you know, course and carriage industry. But the turn of the century into the automobile, it's just to say it's better to be a line worker in the factory of Henry Ford than it is to own Smith and Sons. You see what I mean? That's what Jesus is saying. Man, better to come live with the Spirit than to even get to be a prophet in the Old Testament. That's Jesus' point. That's the invitation. Hence the mounting violence that's coming against it because the world stands against this transitional moment. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. There's a lot of debate on what this could mean or what it doesn't mean. I think just the best I can say is that Jesus is building this argument even more. He's saying there's mounting opposition against this kingdom. You guys can see it. I can see it. John has already experienced it. And more prophecies are coming to fruition. We see this happening. And then he goes back to Malachi. Because he's already quoted from Malachi once. But just a little bit longer in the text of Malachi, Malachi mentions that this coming prophet is going to be one like Elijah. In fact, he says it's going to be Elijah. So Jesus in 14, chapter 11, verse 14, just says, And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Jesus has just quoted Malachi, suggesting that John the prophet is the one that has been prophesied about as Elijah. And then Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah. And then he just drops this little subtle clue in verse 15. Let anyone who has ears listen. Did you catch it? It's very subtle. But if John the Baptist is Elijah, the herald making way for the Messiah, who is Jesus? Did you pick up what Jesus just did? He didn't come out and say, now I am the Messiah, don't you worry. Because he knows where that's going to land him as that becomes more and more known, particularly on an executioner's rack. But for now, he says, if anyone has ears, let him, let him listen. Because the claim has been made, John's the prophet, who does that make me? Now, what does all this have to do with us? And there's a lot of different directions that we could take this, dealing with doubt and dark situations, acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. All of that's here in this text. It's all worth exploring and meditating on. But but here's what I want to go back to. The question we asked at the beginning, why follow 
Jesus. Particularly, why follow Jesus even when he doesn't meet or fulfill our expectations? And I think if we could just draw it to a point, we might say something along the lines of intentionally leaving like Jesus means we trust him, we follow him, but not our expectations of him. That's a little confuddled, I get that, but just hold on to that for me. And let me five more minutes to just explore this idea. Living like Jesus means trusting him, not our expectations of him. The reality is many of us come to Jesus with this slew of expectations that may or may not be accurate to who Jesus is and what he'll do. In fact, I feel one of the biggest problems in the modern church is that we've concocted this Jesus that we're like scared that's not really all that compelling to follow. So in order to make Jesus compelling, we've just transformed him into this narcotic that, hey, if you come follow Jesus, he's going to make you feel better. He's going to make your life better. Everything's going to go the way you want it. Come on. And we're like giving sales pitches to people to come follow Jesus. I mean, hey, come follow Jesus. He's going to make you happy and healthy and wealthy. And if I take my kids to church, then they'll be happy and healthy and they'll be good, upstanding, moral citizens. And if I, that's what I expect from my Jesus. And if that's your expectation, I would just say you are barreling towards a crisis of doubt because those expectations will get dashed. Yes, there is absolutely some truth to Jesus making things better, and generally speaking, my marriage is better when both Haley and I live in pursuit of Jesus. Generally speaking, my money management is better when I live generously and sacrificially for Jesus. Generally speaking, my work ethic is better. But none of that is to say there's never suffering involved. There are plenty of people with great God-glorifying work ethics that lose their jobs. And there are marriages that love Jesus, but they still butt heads from time to time. And there are financial situations that are just strapped and really hard to make sense of. See, none of this is to say that Jesus is here to solve your every problem. So why follow Jesus? See, it's not about the simplicity of Jesus just alleviating suffering. It's about what Jesus does through suffering. Because in three chapters, John's going to have his head taken off. And not long after, Jesus is going to be charged for treason. John dies, Jesus dies. Every logical ounce of us should look at that and say, well, there's the clear sign of failure. A dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. But Jesus had just said, through the example of John, I am not like you expect me to be, but I am far better than you could imagine me to be. Because for Jesus, the enemy is not Herod. For Jesus, the enemy is not Rome or even the Pharisees. For Jesus, the enemy is not human. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The enemy is the deterioration, the breakdown, the destruction, and eventually the death of humanity through sin and evil and all their friends. And Jesus comes in not to solve everybody's problem, but to fully embody the love of your creator by joining himself to our tragic story, to suffer our pain, a pain that he never caused, to suffer our shattered expectations, allowing evil to actually conquer him, to kill him on the cross, and then in the ultimate dash of expectations, to conquer evil by conquering death. That's our story. That's his story. 
And Jesus seems to know that God's love and commitment to this broken world is so great that God will not allow death and suffering to get the final word. That's the gospel. Now, it's really hard to see that from a prison cell. It's really hard for you to see that from whatever situation you're in. I I know if you're in that situation, it's hard to see. But all I can speak to is to say, I promise, even if it's not yet, there's a day coming where he will eradicate pain and suffering once and for all, and that day is far more real than the day we're living in now. So for those of you that may be in this thicket, the only thing I can do is to point you to the gospel. I cannot give you a divine promise that Jesus will resolve your suffering. There is no formula to manipulate God to do what you want him to do. And I would just say, just really briefly right here, if there's ever a church that comes in and is like, come on to our church, sow your $50 seed here, give here, God's going to take care of your suffering. If you give enough, you're never going to have to suffer. They are lying to you. They're lying to you. That's not what our God came to save us from. He came to save us from sin and death through conquering sin and death. So if you're stuck in that moment of suffering, I'll just give you two things. One, notice when John questions, Jesus doesn't flip out. When John's disciples come, Jesus doesn't say, John, how dare you question this? John, you knew who I was from the moment before you were born. Why are you asking this? Jesus doesn't freak out. He just says, hey, John, just look at the data and trust me. You can question Jesus. It's fine, but don't step out. Don't fall away. Lean in closer to Jesus through this time. And how do you do that? Verse 4. As Jesus looks to John's disciples, he says, go and report to John what you hear and see. If that's you, I would just encourage you, hear and see Jesus. I mean, read the words of Jesus. Come to church. Join us as we do it together. Meet with someone else for prayer and encouragement and worship. We do this week after week, not because we're like, this is going to make God love us more and it's more important for you if you come. We do this week after week because we know we all need to be reoriented to the true north. So come, join, participate, knowing that every story, even if it's not your story, of good healing miracles is just a small taste of the real world that is to come. So come, enjoy it right here with us. And in the meantime, verse 6. Blessed is the one who isn't offended, who doesn't stumble because of me. Come trust Jesus. In your John moment, when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, when life doesn't go like you planned, when you're battling confusion and unanswered questions, when you're still waiting, when you feel stuck, blessed is the one who trusts in Jesus, not their expectation of Jesus. Father God, I thank you for this, and I pray as we take time to just reflect You would draw us to trust in you. God, not our ideas of you, not our expectations of you, because those may or may not be true. But God, what the biblical reality is of who Jesus is, of who you are. And God, for those of us in this room that are dealing with deep, dark pains, known or unknown to the person next to them or the people around them, God, would you call, call them, lead them to lead and lean even heavier into you. 
And God, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know this story, that their expectation has been just a Jesus that's going to come take away suffering, but they finally learned and heard about what Jesus would really do, would you give them the love and the response to come give themselves to you, that we would be a church that trusts you fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.